Chapter Thirteen of the Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Latchkey by Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Thirteen. The series goes on. After all, Annesley had not written to her friends, Archdeacon Smith and his wife, on leaving Mrs. Ellsworth to tell the surprising news of her engagement. She had asked Mr. Ruthven Smith not to speak of it to his cousins, because she would prefer to write. But then, the putting of the news on paper in a way not to offend them, after their kindness in the past, had been difficult. Besides, there had been little time to think out the difficulties and find a way of surmounting them. There had been only one whole day before the wedding, and that day she had spent with Knight buying her trousseau. It had been a wonderful day, never to be forgotten, but its end had found her tired, and when Knight had said good-bye and left her, she had not been equal to composing a letter. Nevertheless she had tried it, for it had seemed dreadful to marry and go away from London without letting her only friends know what had happened, what she was doing, and why she had not invited them to her wedding. And why? In explaining that she confronted the great obstacle— she had not known how to exonerate herself without hurting their feelings, or telling a lie. The girl hated lying. She could not remember that in her life she had ever spoken or written a lie in so many words, though, like most people who are not saints, she had prevaricated a little occasionally to save herself or others from some unpleasantness. In this case no innocent prevarication would serve, even if she had been willing to lie, she could think of no excuse which would seem plausible. Tired as she had been that last night as Annesley Grail, and throbbing as she was with excitement at the thought of the new life before her, she did begin a letter. It was a feeble effort. She tore it up and essayed another. The second was worse than the first, and the third was scarcely an improvement. Discouraged and so nerve-wracked that she was on the point of tears, the girl put off the attempt. But days passed, and when no inspiration came, and she was still haunted by the thought of a duty undone, she compromised by telegraphing from Devonshire. Her message ran. Dear friends, I beg you to forgive me for seeming neglect. But it was not really that. I am married to a man I love. It had to be sudden. I could not let you know in time, though I wanted to. I shall not be quite happy till I've seen you and introduced my husband. Say to your cousin he may explain as far as he can. When we meet we'll tell you more. Coming back to London in a fortnight to take house in Portman Square and settle down. Love and gratitude always. My new name is same as yours. Annesley Smith to this she added her address in devonshire feeling sure that unless archdeacon and his wife were hopelessly offended by her neglect and horrified at ruthven smith's story they would write she cared for them very much and it would always be a grief she thought that she and knight had not been married by her old friend every night she prayed for a letter waking in the hope that the postman might bring one and five days after the sending of her telegram her heart leaped at sight of a fat envelope addressed in Mrs. Smith's familiar handwriting. They forgave her. That was the principal thing. And they rejoiced in her happiness. All explanations, if dear Annesley wished to make any, could wait until they met. The kind woman wrote, 
Cousin James Ruthven Smith was loyal to his promise, and gave us no hint of your news. We did not, of course, know of the promise till after your telegram came, and we showed it to him. Then he confessed that he was in your secret, that he had been witness of a scene in which poor Mrs. Ellsworth had made herself more than usually unpleasant, and that you had asked him to let you tell us the glad tidings of your engagement and hasty wedding. I say poor Mrs. Ellsworth's, because it seems she has been ill since you left, and has had other misfortunes. The illness is not serious, and I imagine, now I have heard fuller details of her treatment of you, that it is merely a liver and nerve attack, the result of temper. If she had not been confined to bed and very sorry for herself, I am sure nothing could have prevented her from writing to us a garbled account of the quarrel and your departure. As it turned out, I hear she rang up the household after you went that night, had hysterics, and sent a servant flying for the doctor. He, a most inferior person, according to Cousin James, having a sister who is a trained nurse, put her in charge of the patient at once, where she has remained since. In consequence of the nurse's tyrannical ways, the servants gave a day's notice and left in a body. Three temporary ones were got in as soon as possible from some agency, and last night, four days, I believe, after they were installed, a burglary was committed in the house. Only fancy, poor Ruthven, he was afraid to stay, even with us, in our quiet house when he came to London, because once, years ago, we were robbed. You know how reticent he is about his affairs, and how he never says anything concerning business. One might think that to us he would show some of the beautiful jewels he is supposed to buy for the Van Vrecks. But no, he never mentions them. We should not have known why he came to England this time, after a shorter interval than usual, or that he had valuables in his possession, if it had not been for this burglary. As he was obliged to talk to the police and describe to them what had been stolen from him, I forgot to mention that he, as well as Mrs. Ellsworth, was robbed. But you would have guessed that, from my beginning, even if you hadn't read the morning papers before taking up my letter. There was no reason why, for once, he should not speak freely to us. He has been lunching here, and has just gone, as I write, but I will transfer him later to our house, as it has now become unbearable for him at Mrs. Ellsworth's. I fancy that arrangement has been brought to an end. Your presence in the menage was the sole alleviation. James, it appears, came to London on an unexpected mission, differing from his ordinary trips. You may remember seeing in the papers some weeks ago that an agent of the Van Vreck firm was robbed on shipboard of a lot of pearls, and things he was bringing to show an important client in England, some Indian potentate. James tells us that he procured the finest of the collection for the Van Vrecks, and as he is a great expert, and can recognize jewels he has once seen, even when disguised or cut up, or in different settings, he was able to go to London to help the police find and identify some of the lost valuables. Also, he was instructed to buy more pearls, to be sold to the Indian customer, instead of those stolen from the agent on shipboard. James had not found any of the lost things, but he had bought some pearls the day before the burglary at Mrs. Ellsworth's. Wasn't it too unlucky? I have tried to give the poor fellow a little consolation, by reminding him how fortunate it is he hadn't bought more, and that the loss will be the Van Vrecks, or that of some insurance company, not his personally. But he cannot be comforted. 
He says that his not having ten thousand pounds worth of pearls doesn't console him for being robbed of eight thousand pounds worth. James has little hope that the thieves will be found, for he feels that the Van Vrecks are in for a run of bad luck, after the good fortune of many years. They have lost the head of the firm, the great Paul, as James calls him, who has definitely retired, and occupies himself so exclusively with his collection that he takes no interest in the business. Then there was the robbery on the ship, which, in James's opinion, must have been the work of a masterly combination. And now another theft. The poor man has quite lost his nerve, which, as you know, has for years not been that of a young man. His deafness, no doubt, partly accounts for the timidity with which he has been afflicted since the first, and only other time, he was robbed. And now he blames it for what happened last night. He's trained himself to be a light sleeper, and if he could hear as well as other people, he thinks the thief would have waked him, coming into his room. Once in, the wretch must have drugged him, because the pearls were in a parcel under his pillow. But how the man, or men, got into the house is a mystery, unless one of the new servants was an accomplice. Nothing was broken open. In the morning every door and window was as usual. Of course the servants are under suspicion, but they seem stupid, ordinary people, according to James. As for Mrs. Ellsworth, he says she is making a fuss over the wretched bits of jewellery she lost, things of no importance. She, too, slept through the affair, and knew what had happened only when she waked to see a safe she has in the wall of her bedroom wide open. It seems that in place of her jewel-box and some money she kept, there was an insulting note, announcing that for the first time something belonging to her would be used for a good purpose. To James this is one of the bright spots in the darkness. When Annesley had read this long letter, with its many italics, she passed it to Knight, who, in exchange, handed her a London newspaper with a page folded, so as to give prominence to a certain column. It was an account of the burglary at Mrs. Ellsworth's house, which he had been reading. Generous with money, as Nelson Smith was, he was not a man who would allow himself to be done, and in some ways the Annesley Setons were disappointed in the bargain they arrived at with him. He appeared delighted with the chance of getting their London house, and of having them come to stay, in order to introduce his wife and himself to the brightest, most particular stars in the galaxy of their friends. Yet when it came to making definite terms, he seemed to take it for granted that, as the Annesley Setons would be living in the house as guests, they would not only be willing but anxious to accept a low price. This had not been their intention. On the contrary, they had meant their visit and social offices to be a great extra favour, which ought to raise rather than lower the rent. In some mysterious way, however, without appearing to bargain or haggle, Nelson Smith, the young millionaire from America, made his bride's relatives understand that he was prepared to pay so much and no more, that they could take him on his own terms or let him go. Terrified, therefore, lest he and his money should slip out of their hands, they snapped at his carelessly made offer without venturing an objection and they realized at the same time, in a way equally mysterious, and to their own surprise, that not they but Mr. and Mrs. Nelson Smith would be master and mistress of the house in Portman Square. If there were ever a clash between wills, Nelson Smith's would prevail over theirs. 
How this impression was conveyed to their intelligence they could hardly have explained even to each other. The man was so pleasant, so careless of finances or conventionalities, that not one word or look could be treasured up against him. "'The fellow's a genius,' Annesley Seaton said to Constance, when they were talking over the latest phase of the game, and they respected him. Lady Annesley Seaton wished to bring to town the servants, including a wonderful butler who had been transferred for economy's sake to Valley House. This proposal, however, Nelson Smith dismissed with few good-natured words. He had his eye upon a butler whose brother was a chauffeur. "'Besides, it wouldn't be fair to Anita,' he explained. "'Your servants would scorn to take orders from her, and I want her to learn the dignity of a married woman with responsibilities of her own.' That's the first step towards being the perfect hostess. She's the sweetest girl in the world, but she's timid and distrustful of herself. I want her to know her own worth, and then it won't be long before everyone around her knows it. There was no answer to this except acquiescence, which Dick and Constance were obliged to give. They did give it, the more readily because they were inclined to suspect a hidden hint, a pill between layers of jam. If the girl had been transferred from the earth to Mars, the new conditions of life could scarcely have been more different from the old than was life in Portman Square, married to Nelson Smith from the treadmill as Mrs. Ellsworth's slave companion. What the Portman Square experiences of the bride would have been if Knight had allowed the Annesley Setons to begin by ruling it would be dangerous to say. But he had taken his stand, and without guessing that she owed her freedom of action to her husband's strength of will, she revelled in it with a joy so intense that it came close to pain sometimes if he were within reach she ran to find knight and hugged him almost fiercely with a passion that surprised herself i'm so happy that's all she would explain if he asked what has happened my soul was buried you've brought it back to life when she said such things knight smiled and seemed glad he would hold her to him for a minute or kiss her hand like a humble squire with a princess. But now and then he looked at her with a wistfulness that was like a question she could not hear because she was deaf. She never got any satisfaction, though, if she asked what the look meant. "'Oh, I don't know. I was only thinking of you,' he would answer, or some other words of lover language. The Annesley Seaton's first move on the social chessboard was to make use of a pawn or two in the shape of society reporters. They knew a few men and women of good birth and no money, who lived by writing anonymously for the papers. These people were delighted to get material for a paragraph or photographs for their editors. Connie took her new cousin to the woman photographer, who was the success of the moment, and as she said tonight, the rest managed itself. Meanwhile, an application was made to the Lord Chamberlain for Mrs. Nelson Smith's presentation by her cousin, Lady Annesley Seaton, at the first court of the season. It was granted, and the bride in white and silver made her bow to their majesties. As for night, he laughingly refused Dick's good offices. "'No levies for me,' he said. "'I've lived too long in America, and roughed it in too many queer places, to take myself seriously in knee-breeches.' Besides, they have to know about your ancestors back to the dark ages, don't they? Or else they cancel you. My father was a good man and a gentleman, but who his father was I couldn't tell to save my head. My mother was by way of being a swell, but she was a foreigner, so I can't make use of her quarterings even if I could count them. 
Annesley was presented in February, and had by that time been settled in Portman Square long enough to have met many of her cousin's friends. After the court which launched her in society, she and Knight, with a list supplied by Connie, gave a dinner-dance. The Countess de Santiago was not asked. But soon afterwards there was a luncheon entirely for women, in American fashion, at which the Countess was present. When luncheon was over, she gave a short lecture on the science of palmistry, and the cultivation of clairvoyant powers. Then there was tea, and the Countess allowed herself to be consulted by the guests, the dozen most important women of Connie's acquaintance. Annesley, though she was not able to like the Countess, was pleased with the praise lavished upon her, both for her looks and her accomplishments that afternoon. She had guessed, from the beautiful woman's constrained manner, when they met at a shop the day after the dinner-dance, that she was hurt because she had not been invited, though why she should expect to be asked to every entertainment which the Nelson Smiths gave, Annesley could not see. Vaguely distressed, however, by the flash in the handsome eyes, and the curt, how do you do, the girl appealed to-night. "'Ought we to have had the Countess de Santiago last evening?' she asked, perching on his knee in the room at the back of the house, which he had annexed as a den. "'Certainly not,' he reassured her promptly. All the people were howling swells. The Annesley Setons had skimmed the topmost layer of the cream for our benefit, and the Countess would have been out of it in such a set, unless she'd been telling fortunes. You can ask her when you've a crowd of women. She'll amuse them and gather glory for herself. But I'm not going to have her encouraged to think we belong to her. We've set the woman on her feet by what we've done. Now let her learn to stand alone. The ladies' luncheon was a direct consequence of this speech. But complete as was the Countess's success, Annesley felt that she was not satisfied, that it would take more than a luncheon party of which she was the heroine to content the Countess, now that Nelson Smith and his bride had a house and a circle in London. Occasionally, when she was giving an at-home or a dinner, Annesley consulted Knight. "'Shall we ask the Countess?' was her query, and the first time she did this he answered with another question. "'Do you want her for your own pleasure? Do you like her better than you did?' Annesley had to say no to this catechizing, whereupon Knight briefly disposed of the subject. "'That settles it. We won't have her.' And so, during the next few weeks, the Countess de Santiago, who moved from the Savoy Hotel into a charming, furnished flat in Cadogan Gardens, came to Portman Square only for one luncheon and two or three receptions. By this time, however, she had made friends of her own, and if she had cared to accept a professional status, she might have raked in a small fortune from her séances. She would not take money, however, preferring social recognition, but gifts were pressed upon her by those who, though grateful and admiring, did not care for the obligation to admit the Countess into their intimacy. She took the rings and bracelets and pendants and flowers and fruit and bonbons and books, because they were given in such a way that it would have been ungracious to refuse. But the givers were the very women whose bosom friends she would have liked to seem, in the sight of the world, a duchess, a countess, or a woman distinguished above her sisters for some reason. She worked to gain favour, and when she had any personal triumph, without direct aid from Portman Square, she put on an air of superiority over Annesley when they met. 
If she suffered a gentle snub, she hid the smart, but secretly brooded, blaming Mrs. Nelson Smith, because she was asked to their house only for big parties, or when she was wanted to amuse their friends. She blamed Nelson, too, but, woman-like, blamed Annesley more. Sometimes she determined to put out a claw and draw blood from both, but changed her mind, remembering that to do them harm she must harm herself. Once it occurred to her to form a separate, secret alliance with Constance Annesley Seaton. There were reasons why that might have suited her, and she began one day to feel her ground when Connie had telephoned and had come to her flat for advice from the crystal. She had seen things which she thought Lady Annesley Seaton would like to see, and when the séance was ended in a friendly talk, the Countess de Santiago begged Constance to call her Madalena. "'You are my first real friend in England,' she said. "'Except my cousin Anne,' Connie amended, with a sharp glance from the green-gray eyes to see whether Madalena were working up to anything. "'Oh, I can't count on her,' said the Countess. "'She doesn't like me. She wouldn't have me come near her if it weren't for her husband. I am quick to feel things. You, I believe, really do like me, so I can speak freely to you, and you know you can to me.' But Constance, in the slang of her girlhood days, wasn't taking any. She was afraid that Madalena was trying to draw her into finding fault with her host and hostess, in order to repeat what she said with embroideries to Nelson Smith or Annesley. She was not a woman to be caught by the subtleties of another, and in dread of compromising herself did the Countess de Santiago an injustice. If she had ventured any disparaging remarks of Cousin Anne, they would not have been repeated." The season began early and brilliantly that year, for the weather was spring-like, even in February, and people were ready to enjoy everything. The one blot on the general brightness was a series of robberies. Something happened on an average of ten or twelve days, and always in an unexpected quarter, where the police were not looking. Among the first to suffer were Mr. and Mrs. Nelson Smith. The Portman Square house was broken into, the thief entering a window of the den on the ground floor, and making a clean sweep of all the jewellery Knight and Annesley owned, except her engagement ring, the string of pearls which had been her lover's wedding gift, and the wonderful blue diamond on its thin gold chain. These things she wore by night as well as day. But a gold chain bag, a magnificent double rope of pearls, a diamond dog collar, several rings, brooches, and bangles, which Knight had given her since their marriage, all went. His pearl studs, his watch, a present of Annesley's allowance, hoarded for the purpose, and a collection of jewelled scarf-pins, shared the fate of his wife's treasures. Unfortunately, a great deal of the Annesley Seaton family silver went at the same time, regretted by night far beyond his own losses. Dick was inclined to be solemn over such a haul, but Constance laughed. "'Who cares?' she said. "'We have no children, and for my part I'm pleased as punch that your horrid old third cousins will come into less when we're swept off the board. Meanwhile, we get the insurance money for loss of use again.' it's simply splendid and that dear nelson smith insists on buying the best sheffield plate to replace what's gone it's handsomer than the real neither she nor dick lost any jewellery though they possessed a little with which they had not the courage to part and this seemed mysterious to constance she wondered over it and remembering how the countess de santiago had prophesied another robbery for them telephoned to ask if she'd be a darling and look again in her crystal 
Madalena telephoned back. I'll expect you this afternoon at four o'clock. End of chapter 13